Venture is a very funny business. Even though we're funding disruption, the vast majority of people in venture do it all the same way. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm here with Paul Martino, the founding partner at Bullpen Capital. Paul, start off, love if you could tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to start Bullpen. So I'm a now actually, I guess, six-time founder. I was a four-time founder at the time at which I started Bullpen. Then I started Bullpen, which was number five, and then we actually incubated a company in our office. That's number six. I did my PhD work in the mid-90s and everything that people would call big data. Uh, I did that at Princeton University, 95, 96. I grew up in the Philly suburbs, and I started my first company when I was still in high school, which was a game company in the old bulletin board days. So that gives you an idea, kind of what the the background looks like. Uh, always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Never ever wanted to be involved in a career path that was assigned. You know, like uh, my brother's a doctor, and it was like, well, when I'm this old, I'll do this, and when I'm this old, I'll do this, and when I'm this old, I'll do this. Don't get me wrong. God bless him. That's exactly what we need. A lot of doctors. I just knew anything that was that prescribed was never going to work for me. So I had to be on that. Let's go make it up as we go along kind of path. And sure enough, entrepreneurship was the right way to do that. I love it. So one of the things you've talked about is that uh, venture capital is all about disruption, but it's an industry that for 50 years never disrupted itself. How are you doing that disruption with bullpen and the invention of this uh, post-seed round, as you call it? Well, we're just one of a very small number of funds that actually, in my opinion, do anything different. Uh, venture is a very funny business. Uh, even though we're funding disruption, the vast majority of people in venture do it all the same way. They have a better knowledge of a business, or as I kind of jokingly say, they look better than the person next to them, therefore you'll take my money, and it becomes a branding exercise. And my ratio is about the following. I think if you have 10 venture people in a room, nine of them are trying to look better, sound better, and know more about a category than everybody else, and you're going to get that one out of 10 people who's actually trying to do something different. So Bullpen is certainly doing something different. You know, Josh Koppelman, when he started first round, was doing something different. Andy Radcliffe, when he started Benchmark, was doing something different. But the list is short, yep. uh, and of this last decade, of the now four or 500 micro funds, no way there's more than 20, 25 of us who I would sit down and say, let's start from a blank sheet of paper, let's go figure out what's broken in the business and try and fix it. I find that to be unacceptable in the business. I find it just ridiculous that there isn't more self-introspection in our business, especially since our businesses are out funding disruption. There's a certain deep irony to this. Yep. Without a doubt. So one of the ways we've gotten to uh, know each other is through Full Pen, mm-hmm. which is one of your ways of doing something different. Yeah. Outside advisors you bring in. So what is Full Pen and how is that part of the fund of what you do? Yeah. You know what? That's the first time I've gotten that question. Obviously, you're perfectly qualified to ask it, but it is actually quite, quite on the mark. So when we were thinking about what we would do about venture partners at Bullpen, we're like, well, you know, I was an EIR once. I was a venture partner once. Actually, most of us in the fund, we had either done an EIR gig or had done it. We're like, 
Well, an EIR gig doesn't make any sense. You quit your day job to go sit in somebody else's office for six months? Like, wait a minute, dude. Isn't the value you have like where you work? So, so quit where you work and the access you have to come sit in my office that, oh, by the way, none of the partners will show up to. So Duncan and I and Rich in the early days were sitting around going, well, what would our riff be on a venture partner program? We said, what if we had six or ten domain experts who were a virtual management team? Someone who was really good at branding, someone who was really good at marketing, somebody who was really good at sales. Basically a virtual management team and they had carry in every deal. That's another thing I think a lot of firms get wrong. The venture partner riff is you get carry in the deal you help. Yeah. No, dude, I want, I want Dave Knox bought into my whole portfolio. And so we said, let's do an f- informal program where all the participants are actually carry members in the entire fund. Let's meet once a month and let's have them keep their day jobs. Like you aren't allowed to quit your day. If you quit your day job, I don't want you anymore because the main value you had was that you were the chief executive at such and such. You were the chief executive at Topics. You were the head of customer acquisition at Zynga. You're the head of digital advertising at Rockfish, whatever it was. That was the value proposition. And then, by the way, we, we inadvertently solved another problem. Another problem that you have a lot when you run a venture fund is you run into an old friend or someone who's looking for a job or their next gig, and they go, wow, I'd love to kind of network with you and meet you and talk to everybody. So what we do, you have them come to the office, and maybe one or two of your partners is around. Well, guess what? Once a month, everybody, including Full Pen, is in the office. 20 of us. Full Pen, 10 to 12 people, all the partners, all the employees, it's 20 of us. So guess what? I can invite one or two friends every month to the Full Pen session. They can meet everybody in one fell swoop, raise their hand, and go, I'm looking for a job. And if we can't introduce you to 10 opportunities by the end of that day, shame on us. So in a weird way, this this is what's fun about being an entrepreneur. We were out to solve one problem which was having more value and impact for our portfolio. And we solved another problem, which was networking outsiders into our, our pool better. And that's why more people in venture should actually be entrepreneurs again, because yep. maybe you'll go solve a new problem. Yep, love that. And you know, one of my favorite things of the full pen is it's probably every single month, one of the companies get done with their meeting and they go, that sure as hell wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> right. So how do the companies, what do they even get told when they're about to walk into this room? Yes. So the meeting is so different and unusual that we've gotten, you know, I read the riot act, whoever the inviter is frequently the partner and then Jen, our head of operations will follow up because I don't want anyone sitting there going, I don't understand this. Why are there 20 people in this room? I'm like, look, the pitch is simple. You've got the partners, you've got the advisors. Everybody in this room is someone who potentially could either invest in you or help your company. And you know as well as I do, how many times did you become an advisor to a company yep. that Bullpen did or did not invest in? Exactly. And so once we explain to the, to the people who come in, the two to three companies every month, that you're in a unique spot to be showcased to a much broader part of the ecosystem. But they're confused. Yep. Christine Heron, who's a venture person from Intel, is sitting there like, I don't understand. Intel's with another, she's with another fund. Why does she sit here? Am I so, pitching Intel? Yeah, am I pitching Intel? And, and so we have to do a good job explaining why this is such a valuable hour of your day to our entrepreneurs. And yes, every once in a while we do a poor job of that. And the poor entrepreneur is like, what the frick is this? I love it. So one of the things you talk about is bullpen is about ignoring hype and trusting data. Yes. So that's a lesson any company can learn, big, small, investor, marketer, et cetera. How do you really use data, though, to ignore hype? How do you put action behind those words? 
So what we figured out was remarkably simple, and this is only because so few other funds do it. I imagine if we were in a more data-driven business, this wouldn't have worked because the low-hanging fruit would have been picked already. Yep. Let me tell you the secret of what we do. It's actually remarkably easy. So we're looking for companies that no one else is paying attention to, that there's a reason you should be paying attention to. We're looking for the false negatives of the ecosystem. Those false negatives fall into a couple categories. The founder is from an unsexy school. The company is in a weird geography, or the category is out of favor. You know, the venture zeitgeist deemed that to be a bad category this particular year. That's like pink being in and purple being out, or whatever it is. There's a little bit of fashion associated with it. So, if you want to find companies that are doing a good job in spite of being off by one of those three characteristics, why don't you start with actual metrics of the business? And so what we do is we invert the screening funnel of the way most venture funds do it. Most venture funds say, who are you? Where'd you come from? How did you meet me? How warm was the lead? Is this a founder who can move mountains? By the way, we ask all those questions, but we ask them at the end, not at the beginning. Yep. So a normal venture fund, who are you? Where'd you come from? How do I know you? How warm is the lead? Oh, do I like the business? Down the funnel, down the funnel. Oh, analysts, go look at the financial model. We do the opposite. Oh, analysts, look at the financial model before we even take the meeting. And so now, by starting with the financial model, which is usually the bottom part of due diligence, we're able to screen a completely different subset of the companies. And oh, by the way, this is not automated. Some people every once in a while come to our office and are like, let me see your supercomputer. I'm like, no, dude, no. It's actually remarkably simple. Any analyst can be trained in a week on the key metrics that we're looking for to say this is a company, even though the founder used to be a cocktail waitress in Florida doing cosmetics, this is one you need to look at. That's Ipsy, right? You know, we have, we have companies that look like that, but if you started with the background of the founders, you wouldn't have ever looked at that company. Yep. But like the true Moneyball, Moneyball's approach wasn't, Fine guys who hit home runs. It was fine guys who get on base. But guess what Billy Bean had to go do? He still had to go watch the guy bat. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So this is where the art meets the science. The science says, which company should I look at that no one's paying attention to? But the art of it is, I got to still go watch that company swing the bat. And so if I look at a different subset, but then make venture decisions at the bottom of the funnel because they get on base, we're going to find a completely uncorrelated set of companies that actually match the venture screen, but I'm going to go look at a set that no one else looked at. And that's the magic of bullpen. is isn't that there's a supercomputer. It's that if I start with the numbers and go with the gut last, I'm going to play the game the opposite order almost everybody else in the field does it. I love that. So talk about a place where you play it different. So one of my favorite posts you ever wrote was Vice, Virtue, and Bishop. <laughs> And you talk about that, you know, at Bullpen, on a rare occasion, we attempt to predict the future. While our bread and butter is stage and milestone-based investing, i.e. post-seed, everything you just talked about, we do occasionally play in the traditional venture sandbox of thematic investing. 
What did you mean when you said that the history of venture capital was is filled with bold predictions of a future world? So yeah. start there. So first off, it is, and almost all of them are wrong, right? That 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 to me is irony. This is yep. why. It's almost verboten. It's not completely verboten. It's almost verboten to predict the future in the yep. office because we find that it's pretty dang difficult to predict the future. And oh, by the way, there's a certain of ego and hubris that you fill yourself with if all day you're attempting to predict the future. Now, if every once in a while you literally are sitting in the catbird seat and you're the only person who can see it, well, damn it, go with it. You know, this happens a lot in enterprise software or in deep tech. Literally, there's only three people in the world who could build the thing. I know one of the three people who could build the thing. Guess what? I have unfair knowledge. So in the case of vice in general, in particular around gaming and gambling, you know, we were in Bettable, we were in Fandle, we were in Jackpocket, we were in Derby Jackpot. So we had horse racing, we had lottery, we had fantasy sports. And you know what? A, course go, a case comes in front of the Supreme Court that is likely to legalize sports betting. You know, maybe this will happen once in my career, maybe twice in my career, where I really wasn't predicting the future. I actually knew something nobody else knew. Yep. To me, that's the big difference. Yep. Predicting the future is I have a thesis about how the world should be. I don't have any thesis about how the world should be. I just knew that there were a couple things that were likely to happen because I had unfair knowledge over everybody else. And to me, that's the difference. And if you if you show up, Dave, to my office with unfair knowledge about something, God bless you. If you show up saying, well, you know, self-driving cars are going to change the universe in this way 20 years from now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of laugh a little bit. I mean, we're in Spot Hero, which is one of my favorite examples of this. So everyone has these theses around self-driving cars are going to do this and do that. And CEO Spot Hero comes into my office one day, and this is before Spot Hero had become the big time winner, which it looks like they're the winner in on-demand parking. He said to me, yeah, that's awesome, but you know, eventually all those self-driving cars got to go park somewhere, right? And it's just one of these, you know, it takes a Midwest guy from Chicago yep. with simple sensibilities to cut to the chase. Yep. Eventually the car has got to go park somewhere. So I don't care what the future of self-driving cars is, I have a good business. And so that kind of much more practical application of the future is interesting to us than what the actual geography of cities will look like 20 years from now because self-driving cars will be blah, blah, blah. That seems really hard to do. Yep. Oh, I love that. So playing up on that one more. So you talked about sports gambling, but what you talk about really in that post is that what happened was, yes, this piece of legislature, but the place before that was the recession. Mm -hmm. 2008 happened. That meant the government needed to look at new revenue streams, new everything. Yeah. I talk about that's second-order consequences. As human beings, we're really good at cause and effect. We're really shitty at thinking about this happened, so here's the potential things that might play out for it. What led you from Great Recession to new revenue streams to these vices that might be out there? So again, I don't want to get too much credit. Yeah. And, and I, I mean that not in a humble brag way at all. I want to make sure you understand what direction the arrow goes at bullpen, because the arrow really does go the opposite way at bullpen. So we're sitting there waiting at 4 o'clock in the morning for the state of New York's legislator to decide to legalize or not FanDuel. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're, we got people in the state house at 4 in the morning. So it wasn't so much that we needed to predict the future. 
We saw what was getting horse traded at four in the morning between the groups and understood the way that legalization would go to both oversight as well as taxation, which would be a cash cow for the states that were strapped. Yep. So the arrow again kind of goes in the opposite order. Not that, oh my God, there's a great recession. What will be the businesses that we need to go in? Which I think is the unknowable, impossible thing. On the other hand, wow, I'm sitting in the state house. I have unfair knowledge about what these legislators are doing. Oh, by the way, this is going to happen in California next. It's going to happen in Pennsylvania next. Oh, by the way, they asked us to help draft the legislation. Oh, I see why all this is happening. It's because there's, they're so upside down in their pensions and they need the money. So it's much more pedestrian, yeah. whereas other people in the business give us some great appreciation for how forward thinking we were. No, dude, we were just in the tw- trenches and got the data. Guess what? If you have the data, Knox, it's not that hard. Yep. Yeah. I love that. So let's talk about that, you know, because predictions can't do them. You're a card player, though. Mm-hmm. You know, you love playing poker, go to the casino. So how do you get those advantages when you look at playing cards? It's about it's not the hands in your you know cards in your hand. It's knowing the table, knowing the players, yeah. knowing where the turn's going to be. About not knowing what card it's going to be, but knowing how other people might react. So how do you play that? How do you read people, industries, and that's a science and an art that you're doing at at the card table. Yes, and I think the best analogy is the following. And I've heard this said many times. I don't know who properly to attribute it to. In a startup, there is always at least one lucky break that happens. And the difference between that startup being the winner and not is how well they capitalized on the lucky break. This is where poker and startups are absolutely the same. If the turn card is the ace of spades, which I need, am I going to be able to pounce? And if it is, did I have enough money on the table? Did I have enough, the right read? Did I set the game up right so that if my card comes, I'm going to make a lot of money? Or I'm going to have a great company or I'm going to build an awesome product? That's where poker and startups are just the same. Because people, I think, again, start having this, I can will the future. I can make my lucky break happen. And you know what? Every once in a while, you can. I'm not going to discount that. And there are a few entrepreneurs I've met in my life who really can almost break space and time. But you know what? For us mere mortals, I'll play enough games so that when my card hits, I can pounce. That seems like a better way to make money in the long run. Yeah, I love that. Because that's, end of the day, that's what predicting the turn is about. It's not about predictions. It's not about being a futurist and hoping. It's you put yourself as a company in position, whether you're an emerging company, a big company, or anything in between. Yep. Um, so related to that, you've had a lot of portfolio companies, amazing successes. They've gotten to that point of time to start partnering with a big company. Yeah. You talked about Spot Hero. They announced one with Hertz. FanDuel, which you sat on the board with, did a lot from the NBA to Comcast to et cetera. Mm-hmm. What do you tell all those companies when they start going down these partnership paths of working with legacy companies that might not understand innovation? What are the, the coaching you give them, the watch outs? So here's a first stat that you might be surprised by, even though you've been involved with our fund for so many years. 30% of the rounds we lead, we have a strategic investor as a co-investor. So one in three, we've done 90 companies. 30 times the strategic was actually in the round when we first met the company. So this is, this, is, this is critical to our DNA. So we've invested with Microsoft and Salesforce and Intel God knows how many times because a lot of times the company comes to us and says, Intel will give me $2 million, but they want a third-party lead. Will you help me? So this has been bread and butter for us. Yep. So if a third of them have it at the time of our investment, 
Another third of them have a strategic show up in the first year. And then guess what? By the second year, 90% of them have had a strategic to the table. And we have, by and large, embraced this, again, breaking the mold of venture. A lot of times, don't have the strategic come into the round too early, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But since we invest after product market fit, a strategic's almost never too early for us to come in. Now, if you have an oligopolistic business and you want to pick one and alienate the other three, you have that's potentially a problem. You gotta be smart. Mm -hmm. If you're doing business with an ad tech company and you partner with Omnicom, well guess what? You might not be able to have WPP at the table because they don't like each other. So there are issues with partnering with strategics, but nine times out of 10, most of the issues that you come into are in your own head as opposed to in the actual business practice of what you wanna go get done. Um, so we enjoy partnering with strategics, and we have found that catalyzing rounds with strategics is actually a core value proposition of what Bullpen does. No, it's so true. You know, the the whole thing of Sand Hill and traditional VC, when we were starting the brandery, I can't even begin to count the number of times that people said, well, why would you want a P&G or a Nestle or somebody else involved too early? You know, aren't they just going to influence badly, do bad behavior? It's kind of one of those analogies that a lot of big company or a lot of VCs say isn't good. So I'll give you one other one I like. This one I'm going to attribute properly. Mike Maples at Floodgate, yep. good friend of mine. We're actually hosting a fun event in December called No Fleece. Um, Mike is how I got in the business. He actually offered me a job to join him at uh, Floodgate, which led to the brainstorming that eventually became Bullpen. So I turned down his job but joined the business anyway. He once said the following thing to me. Whenever I meet someone whose card says director of innovation, I run. <laughs> and so... I kind of at first thought that was funny, but then more and more I'd meet the person whose card said director of innovation and I'd find out that they literally were on some island yep. so that somebody felt good about themselves in the big company. Whereas the business owner unit who had a problem to solve was always the person you wanted to deal with. Sure, maybe the director of innovation can play tour guide for the company, yeah. but that's it. They're, they don't have the budget, the importance, and the wherewithal. I'm sure there's some examples, and so someone out there who's listening whose title is director of innovation, I'm sure a couple of you are super awesome at that and make things happen and make rain for your company. But most of the time, you're the tour guide until the business owner really gets engaged. And I see too many of the startups get engaged with the innovation lab of the big company as opposed to the BU who really needs your thing. So make sure you understand you've got strategic alignment with the person who, whose business and life and bonus you're going to affect. Yeah, no, it's so true. So we've talked about innovation. We've talked about bullpen. So you've talked, you've got bullpen. You've got the playoff fund, which you just announced. You've talked about Moneyball. What led to all the sports analogies, and why has that been at the core of what you've done besides just being a Philly guy? Yeah, no, it's actually really funny. I mean, it wasn't by design. It wasn't, wow, I'm such a sports fan that I need that to be part of my life. It wasn't like that really at all. It's just, It just seemed like every time we were doing something, it showed up again. So the story of Bullpen, how we even got our name, is attributed to Chad Durbin, who was a pitcher for the 08 Phillies, who's an LP in the fund. Before Bullpen had a name, he was in our office pitching us in between seasons. It was between the um, 10 and 11 seasons. He won the World Series with the Phillies in 08. He was doing a sports recruiting website to match scholarships with high school athletes called Showcase Youth Sports. Yep. And we were, and you know, we were as experimental as he was, right? We were, we didn't even have a name yet. It was me, Duncan, and Rich kind of screwing around in Rich's office, acting like we had a fund. Um, and, and Chad said something to us that went something like, no one remembers, you know, all these things become myth at some point. But Chad said something like, well, you know, you guys kind of do for the seed funds what I do for the starting pitchers. 
we're like, yeah, actually, you're a bullpen pitcher, and the starter starting pitcher runs out of gas. You go in to get him to the closer, and we're like, yeah, we're the middle reliever between the starting pitcher, who's a first-rounder of Floodgate, and, and the closer, who's the Kleiner or the Sequoia. And so we went with it. And then it turned out we were doing Moneyball-style analytics. And then we invested in FanDuel. And the next thing you know, we're in a whole bunch of sports stuff. But it wasn't like we stood up and said, wow, we're sports enthusiasts. Let's find a way to do sports at our fund. Yeah. It's kind of happened the other way around. Well, like you said, every once in a while you have to be at the table no one to pounce. And <laughs> you guys pounce in the right way. So Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, I feel fortunate I've been involved with bullpen as long as I have. And Great. I tell everybody I think I learn more out of the meetings than I ever give in to them. So I appreciate the time. Uh, Knox, we're glad you come. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.